Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and just be in your presence and gather for worship today. God, we do depend on you. Father, for our waking breath, for our daily bread, for the victories before us, ultimately for eternal life and to be raised with Christ, we depend on you. Father, we thank you that you have accomplished all that is needed for us to be redeemed and restored in Christ through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we thank you that we have the blessing and the privilege to gather each week and just worship you together collectively in spirit and in truth. So as we gather around your word today, Father, we just ask that, Holy Spirit, you would move within our hearts and our minds to push out any distractions or cares or concerns and to help us to focus and receive from you today what it is that you have for us from this time in your word. Father, nothing that we can do is done in our own strength. And so I just pray, Father, for just the power of your Holy Spirit to work through even my words today, that these words would not represent my thoughts or my words, but yours and yours alone. And God, would they be received as your words and your words alone. Father, may our time together today bring just further us in our journey of sanctification with you and may collectively we be edified as you are glorified. And we pray all of these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we will be today. Uh, Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Or if you're joining us online, we thank you that you have joined with us in our time of worship today. My name is Dave Eatman. I serve as an associate pastor here. And it's always my privilege uh, to be able to Uh, lead us in our time of worship together uh, in the Word. We're continuing today in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount now for several weeks, uh, and we've kind of tracked through the Beatitudes, and now we're moving more into what would be the body of the Sermon uh, on the Mount. So uh, when I was uh, in the Marine Corps, I joined the Marine Corps at 17 years old, and uh, I went to boot camp. I grew up, I would say, in Christian culture is what I would call it. I knew about kind of Christianity and and the things of God, but I didn't really understand uh, the gospel, what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And uh, and actually, the first time I ever really heard that was my first Sunday in basic training right over across the water there at Paris Island. But as I went through my time in the Marine Corps, I had a a staff sergeant in my life. Uh, His name was Dwayne Hansen. And the interesting thing about Dwayne, he was such an enigma to me uh, because on one hand, he was like just the poster child for the Marine Corps. You know, blonde hair, blue eyes, square jaw, had been a drill instructor both on the enlisted and the officer side, walked around calling out cadence all the time. And he was that guy. And he just lived out like, you know, the, the being a Marine. But what made him so interesting, what captivated my attention is that at the same time, just as gung-ho as he was about being a Marine, he was even more so gung-ho about being a follower of Christ. And I just remember being just enamored by the fact that how he held these two things together and how he was just a master at turning a conversation to spiritual things. Like, remember, we would be sitting around maybe talking about something, cutting up, carrying on, and someone would say something. 
And he would say, hey, Marie, that reminds me of a story. And everyone else would kind of sneak away because they knew he's getting ready to talk about Jesus. And so he had his sights set on whoever that was, and he would begin to expound on the things of God. And he did that to, my, to, to me in my life several times. And even though he was sometimes the object of kind of our, our ridicule or things like that, when life went sideways, that's who you wanted to go talk to. When a couple of times my life went sideways, and he was the guy that I wanted to go talk to, and he would share things with me from the Word, and he would point me to the hope that he possessed in Christ. And as I reflect on that and reflect on what he was doing in my life and how he was living out his life for Christ, I understand and understood that he was living out the passage of our, our, our text, our passage of Scripture today, being salt and light in the world around him. The Sermon on the Mount began several weeks ago as we began to look at it by building a picture of the follower of Christ and how he is to find true joy and blessedness in his new identity. Someone who back in Matthew 4, 17, we see the beginning of Jesus' message that says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus moves into the Sermon on the Mount. And so for the past eight weeks, we've been looking at the Beatitudes and what it means to be, what our identity is in Jesus, an identity that understands foundationally that we are spiritually bankrupt outside of Christ, an identity that mourns over the sin in our lives and the lives of others, an identity that channels the power of Christ in us for the good of those around us, an identity that longs for the righteousness of Christ, understanding that that is where we find true joy and satisfaction and fulfillment, an identity that desires purity in heart and mind and soul, an identity that accepts our calling to assist others in making peace with God, and an identity that embraces the reality that when we live this counterculturally, opposition will come, and that we identify even with our Lord Jesus in his suffering. <clears throat> and with this vivid picture in mind now of who we are called to be in Christ, the Sermon on the, on the Mount now begins to unpack what we're called to do with that and outlines the responsibility of the one that's called blessed. For a follower of Christ to fully embrace our identity as described in the Beatitudes and to live accordingly is to live a life so countercultural to those around us that others can't help but take notice. And by taking notice of a surrendered life in Christ, the Creator receives glory from his creation. And so accordingly, as Jesus begins to move past his introduction, so to speak, into the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to address this by showing us that the natural overflow of a blessed life in Christ should positively impact those around us and bring glory to our Heavenly Father. So let's look in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And the first thing we'll see is for the follower of Christ, life should be enhanced by us. Life should be enhanced by us. Verse 13. Jesus begins here by giving us three different analogies of how our life should impact those around us. In verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. First, Jesus uses the analogy that we are the salt of of the earth. And as salt of the earth, we are to be about preserving the truth and revealing the original goodness of creation. 
Salt has been a valuable commodity throughout world history. It's been used for trade. It has been used for currency. It's even been the basis for wars and conflicts. And in the Hebrew world and the Hebrew culture that Jesus is giving this sermon, salt was very important for a couple of reasons. One, before refrigeration, salt was used heavily for preservation, especially in terms of meat. And so meat would be packed and coated in salt to preserve it. And it would do so by drying out the meat, by drawing the moisture out of the meat so that bacteria couldn't grow and thrive and develop. And it would help prohibit bacterial growth and and prevent spoilage. But we also know that salt, even to this day, is used to enhance the flavor of foods, to bring out the flavor of foods. My dad was, I was just thinking about this the other day, my dad was about my age when he had a heart attack. And uh, he was... um, wasn't really living all that healthy of a lifestyle. He had a high-stress job. He had a history of heart disease in his family, and so he had a heart attack. And uh, so my mom had to, you know, my mom was like a great cook. She's, you know, southern lady, southern cooking, you know, great food, but not great for you. And she had to completely redo how she cooked. And I was in the Marine Corps at the time, so I always looked forward to going home and getting a home-cooked meal for mom. And I remember the first time I went to her house, after my dad's heart attack, and I sat down to eat, and I took the first bite, and I'm like, what happened? (laughs) She had completely, like, just changed it, taken all the salt out. It was just bland, and I had to, like, grab the salt shaker and add to it. Salt brings out flavor uh, in foods. The other night, I was, uh, we went out to dinner with some friends, and we went to uh, uh, Cowboy Brazilian Steakhouse. Anybody ever been there in Hilton Head? Meat coma. If you like meat, go there. But what? But some of the meats, as they bring them out, they, they actually tell, hey, put a little salt on that because it brings out the flavor in the foods. Not only does salt bring out savory flavors, but it actually also enhances sweet flavors. You can put a pinch of salt in something that's intended to be sweet, and it'll bring the sweetness out of that. Some people even put salt on watermelon. Who does that? Who, several of you. Yeah, there was several in the first service too. Whoever thought of that, I have no idea, but I haven't done it. But people tell me that it brings out the sweetness of the watermelon, because of the drying effect of salt, what it actually does is it concentrates the original flavor of the food, making it more perceptible and more enjoyable. And when we consider the analogy that Jesus is saying here, that we are to be the salt of the earth, we understand that Jesus is calling us both to preserve the truth, to, to keep the harmful elements of the world out of the truth and maintain the purity of God's word and to live lives that concentrate the goodness of God's creation, to help people experience and bring out the flavor and the sweetness and the goodness of life in the way that God originally intended it to be experienced. Psalm 34, the psalmist writes, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And when people get a taste of Christ through us, through our lives, Man, they should explain, man, that was really good. Like, that's how life is supposed to be experienced and intended. And the interesting thing about salt is salt can only be salty. And when we look at what Jesus is saying here at the end of verse 13, where he says, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it be restored? That's actually rhetorical because salt doesn't lose its taste. And Jesus is using this rhetorical point to make the fact that if we are followers of Christ, our lives should just naturally present themselves in a way that enhances the flavor of life. So first, Jesus uses the analogy of salt. Next, Jesus uses the analogy of a city set on a hill, verse 14. 
He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city on a hill, a visible presence inviting others to find a place of community. From our earliest days as, as young men and young women, we begin to learn by trying to connect with others, trying to find that place of connection and belonging. Young children learn how to speak and talk and walk and act by mimicking their parents and others around them. We had our grandkids with us a couple of weekends ago, and some of the things they were doing and seeing were like, oh, I can, I can see my son in that. I can see our daughter in that. And sometimes that's good, and maybe sometimes it's not. But we learn by mimicking others. As we progress through our school age years, we're jockeying for position, trying to figure out which group we belong in, who we identify with, which group will accept us. We find strong identity in community, whether that be through a natural family, whether that be through an affinity group, a sports team. How many of you identify and talk about your sports team using the pronoun we? Right? Like, like which position do you play? I don't know. But we do that, right? We say we, you know, we're going all the way this year, right? Identity, we find identity and belonging and importance and value in community. And the bottom line is we're all looking for our place in this world. We're all trying to find out where, who is it that we fit with. And here, Jesus is instructing his followers that just like a city set up on a hillside, that we should present ourselves as that place of welcoming and belonging. See, a city set up on a hill is easy to spot. It's prominent. It's, it's up high on a hill so all can see. It's not hidden. And in Jesus, our life in Christ should be just as prominent and should be a presence that is inviting others to come up, to come in, to join us, come and find a place of safety and security and identity and belonging. In Jesus, our lives should be a place to present to others around us. This is a place we can call home. Throughout the Old Testament, as Jesus has given this sermon and talking about the city, Israel, the Israelites would have thought about Jerusalem. Jerusalem held a place of prominence in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel, the Hebrew people. Jerusalem was the, the place of God. It was a city of David. It was a place that, that was so closely tied to their national identity and their sense of belonging and who they were. In Psalm 122, David writes of Jerusalem, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Jerusalem was prominent as a city, as a place of identity and security and belonging for the nation of Israel. By the time of the New Testament, the people of God, though, became to the realization, began to understand that true security and identity is not going to be found in an earthly city. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 writes, For we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, 
Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And ultimately, that city that is to come is wrapped up in the promise of eternal life and eternal ultimate identity and belonging as the people of God who will dwell in his presence forever. The writer of Hebrews again in chapter 11, speaking of those who passed on in faith looking towards the day of Christ, writes, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As followers of Christ, our lives should be a shadow, a type of the place of true identity and community and belonging that is ours within the family of God. And we should be, our lives should be representative of that eternal city, that eternal place of belonging that is set on a hill that is prominent and inviting all those who will call on the name of the Lord. So we see that God uses the analogy of salt. We see that Jesus uses the analogy of a city. Third, Jesus uses the analogy of light. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. As a light on a stand, we are called to be illuminating the darkness around us to show others the way. Just like there was no refrigeration at this point in history, there's also not electricity. And so as such, the way the Hebrew home would provide light when it, when it got dark outside at nighttime would be to light a lamp uh, and put it up on a stand so that it would give light to all the house. And we understand like maybe when your power's gone out and you light a candle, a lot of times we'll take that, we'll put it up on a mantle or put it somewhere because the higher it goes, we understand that it provides more light. Uh, than just a smaller area. And it would be ridiculous to, to take a lamp or to light a candle in the darkness and put it down on the floor and then cover it up with a basket. Jesus even says, people don't do that because it's common sense. That's not how we utilize light. And when we think about darkness, darkness in itself is not a substance. Darkness is the absence of a substance. It's the absence of light. In the moment, just a little bit of light begins to be present it immediately begins to do its work of dispelling the darkness and pushing the darkness out and replacing it with light. You ever been like traveling and you stay in a hotel room and get ready to go to bed and you kill the lights and you're trying to go to sleep and you got like this laser beam of an alarm clock just beaming you right in the face and you have to turn it around, right? It's just amazing how much just those little blue or red numbers can just, just shine to the point where it can disrupt your, your sleep. When I was in, uh, after basic training in the Marine Corps, I went to uh, infantry training, which is what all Marines do, no matter what your job is, at least for a period of time. And when we did our night ops, one of the pieces of instruction was about this very fact, about how much just a little bit of light begins to cut through the darkness and how even the tip of a cigarette can be seen for such distances in the darkness. Light is one of the most foundational elements of our world. In fact, the very first recorded words we have from God or let there be light. And God's very first recorded words for our creation are continuing to ring in our ears today from this sermon from Jesus, as Jesus is exclaiming, let my church be light. 
Our purpose in Christ is to illuminate the true reality. See, darkness obscures reality. Darkness obscures the world around us, so we have trouble seeing what is true, what is real. Sometimes you can be in the dark and your mind can actually play tricks on you. You can actually see something that's not there or see something that that doesn't really look the way it actually looks because of the darkness, but light dispels that. Light brings to bear what is true, what is real, and cuts the darkness around us. And the light of our life in Christ should be doing that and cutting through the darkness that's caused by sin in this world. Light is probably one of the more prominent illustrations for God, for Christ, for his church that we see throughout scripture. And it's found throughout from beginning to end. I've already made reference to God's first recorded words, let there be light. Israel as a nation, as they were called as God's chosen people, were called to be a light to the world around them and to be the nation who ultimately the true light of Christ, the Messiah, would come. Isaiah picks up on this in chapter 60 where he writes, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, Darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Jesus himself describes himself as the light of the world in John 8, where he says in eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In our text today, Jesus then describes us as the light, as one who we're supposed to reflect that light that he carries. Paul continues the analogy in Ephesians 5, where he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And in the closing chapter of Revelation, we see a description of the city of God that we will dwell in forever for eternity with God himself as our light. In Revelation 22, John writes what he sees, saying, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Just as salt can do nothing but be salty. Just as a city set on a hill can do nothing but be prominent and be seen by others, light can only give light. That's what it was created for. And as a people set apart for God, we are called to let our light shine up towards others, to do what we are called to do, to do what we were created for. So for the follower of Christ, life should be enhanced by us. Why? so that others may experience God through us. Verse 16, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the same way, in the same way that salt preserves the truth and enhances and brings out the goodness of God's creation and redemptive plan. 
In the same way that a city set on a hill invites others into a place of true community and identity and belonging, in the same way that light set up on a stand dispels the darkness around us and cuts through it to give light to all the house. Jesus is saying we are called to shine brightly and prominently before others. Why? First, to bear witness to the goodness of God. To bear witness to the goodness of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says that we are the, or that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Like if we want to know what God is like, if what makes his heart beat, God's expression towards us, God's, all we have to do is look at Jesus. And Jesus here is saying that same reality should pass through him, through us, to others. That others should be able to see the light of Christ and the light of God through our lives. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 this way, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And while we see repeatedly throughout Scripture that it's not our works that save us, that redeem us, but only the free gift of God's grace in Jesus, it is our works that bring glory to the Father and that show a watching world, that catch the attention of a watching world that is stumbling around in the darkness, searching for the true light. And when we show concern for the poor and destitute, when we take care of the sick, when we honor God-ordained authorities in our lives, when we treat everyone with dignity and respect, when we seek the good of the city and the community in which we live, when we share the goodness of God and his redemption and desire to be in relationship with the world around us, when we live lives that are set apart, people take notice. Truth is preserved. The original goodness of God's created order is brought forth and is on display. And the light our love gives off begins to shine into the darkness of men's hearts to reveal the image of a creator and the one who we are called to bear. And in this, our lives do what they were originally created to do by bringing praise to the greatness of God. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question in the catechism is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We were created, our lives were created so that we may enjoy the goodness of God and reflect that goodness to the world around us, to show the world around us what God originally intended in this good creation that has been marred by brokenness in darkness and sin. And so with Paul, we say together and what he writes to the church in Corinth, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As followers of Christ, church, we are called to be the salt of the earth, to live lives that preserve the truth and the purity of God's word, and to enhance the goodness and the flavor of life, to allow people to experience the goodness of creation the way God intended it to be experienced. We are called to live lives prominently. Our faith is to be on display as an inviting presence, inviting and welcoming others in, saying, come, come, experience the Lord Jesus. We are called to be lights in a world and live lives that dispel and cut through the darkness of this world around us to show people to the true light 
that is in Jesus Christ. And we do this not that they may see us, but that they might see the light that reflects through us. And, the, and we do this not that we may receive glory, but that God may receive glory. As we embrace the blessed identity of the follower of Christ, that's described throughout the Beatitudes, let us also likewise embrace the blessed responsibility of bringing glory to the Father by being lights in the darkness. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we just come before you this morning grateful for the opportunity to gather and just to be reminded of our calling as followers of Christ, to be salt and light, to live our lives prominently on display for others around us to see, to live lives that, that, that make people see what we have and want it, God, that, that, that live lives in, in a way that stand out, that catch people's attention. And God, I confess that so often, even, even as I have prepared this sermon this week, God, I've been reminded how often my life does not align with that. Father, I've been reminded how often my life doesn't reflect or enhance the goodness of your original creation, of how often I don't live my life with my faith prominently on display as a welcoming and inviting presence for others, how often I don't allow my light to shine into the darkness. And Father, I just thank you that when I have these realizations as I have this week, that you are standing there with open arms, ready to receive us, ready to offer forgiveness when we bring these things to you and confess that once again, we find ourselves out of alignment with you and your word. I just thank you for the beautiful truth that you are always ready to forgive and that confession and repentance are safe because of your grace and your mercy. And so Father, when we find ourselves in these times, when we find our lives out of alignment, Give us the courage to run to you, knowing that you are ready to receive. Father, we pray that you would help us to take these truths from this message this week and allow it to just soak into our hearts and be reminded of our calling to be salt and light in this world. And Lord, as our hearts now turn to prepare for communion, the Lord's Supper, would you just search us? Holy Spirit, would you just do the work in our heart to show us where we're not in alignment? Show us where sin has taken root. Show us where our thoughts or our actions, our words, our deeds are not pleasing. Search our hearts, Lord, today. as things come to our hearts and minds, you reveal these things that would be not pleasing to you, would be harmful for us, would you just give us the courage to confess those right now? To repent of those things, truly expressing our desire to rid our lives of those things and to hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing that that is where we will truly be satisfied. Would you allow us to experience the goodness of your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness as we bring these things before you. 
and we just allow praise to you and to your finished work. Just well up in our hearts once again as we are reminded of the goodness and the greatness of our God. Father, we thank you for this time we've had in your word today. We pray that it would go with us throughout this week as we seek to be salt and light to the world around us. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus.